does intellect contain brutal power politics? It's the brutes who want to govern. You wouldn't want to run for president. Nobody at this table would run for president. But power attracts a certain kind of person. And the best thing I can say about the American Constitution, we used to, in the past, sometimes think it was a bad thing about it, that it so limits the power of presidents to get things done. It's often very frustrating. But the dangers of unlimited power were having acted out for us in the headlines every day under Trump. If Trump could do what he wanted, he might have launched a nuclear weapon before now. The man can absolutely not be counted on to be reasonable about anything. You see him in these rallies encouraging to beat up the protesters who were there. It's a very devastatingly bad influence on American politics. The country's divided as it hasn't been for decades. But he's limited. And we, I think, have to beef up the limitations on power. And I think that means that the scientists, the ones who didn't quit when Rotblatt did, they should have given more thought how to stop this from going straight to General Groves and Truman and let them make the big decisions because they'll make the wrong decisions. Well, look, they did. There was this group, I'm saying, that did think about it. So there was the Frank Committee in Chicago because their main work had been done now at the Metallurgical Lab and the work of assembling the bomb was going on at Los Alamos. So the people at Chicago could now sit back and do something, by the way, that Frank had asked as a demand for his participation in the whole project, he had been involved in the, like Haber, in the German chemical warfare problem in World War One. And Haber, Fritz Haber, who more or less invented chemical warfare, his wife committed suicide, generally understood to be because of her feeling of guilt and horror oh. at the gas program. But Frank who was later a Nobel Prize winner, said, all right, if I'm going to be involved in a government program like this, I want to be assured that I will have the chance before it's used to weigh in as a scientist on what the possibilities are and what the problems are. And so he had this committee, which recommended as follows, and just to boil it down to one thing. What they foresaw was not only thousands of atom bombs in a race, but they saw the H-bomb from the beginning. They had mm -hmm. since 42. Mm -hmm. So this is, has the power to destroy civilization in it. Thousands of H-bombs, eventually hydrogen bombs. And by the way, we're talking to an audience here now where I won't go into it now, but where I've discovered dozens of times over, hardly any American knows the difference between an A-bomb and an H-bomb. Well, I won't, yes, absolutely, but I, I won't go into that okay. right now. The point be, they will get much larger and they'll have the possibility to destroy civilization. There is no possibility of avoiding a disastrous arms race if we go ahead with this weapon without the Russians' participation, our allies, mm -hmm. in the war. We're taking most of the casualties by far, 10 times factor in the war. If we do this secretly, in an effect hostily, without them as an ally, there will be an arms race and there will be no stopping it. There will be no possibility for international control of this. If we even test the weapon without their presence, but certainly if we use it in Japan, and therefore they, they had a petition actually of scientists, which was, as you say, stopped by Groves from never getting to the president, which in its first form said, don't do this even if it would save American lives. Truman never saw that. 
It was signed by, at the first instance, by about 60 scientists, eventually more than 120. Uh, a little softer. Consider, you know, not doing it. Consider moral situations. It didn't say flatly, don't do it. But even that was never seen by Truman. Now, one of the members, the rapporteur of the group, Eugene Rabinowitz, who later became the head of the Federation of American Scientists and the end of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, with its doomsday clock, which just moved forward to two minutes till midnight, the first time since, I think, 1954, when the H-bomb was first tested. So he said, Rabinowitz said, they should leak this. They shouldn't go through channels. They should get it to the press. And he later said, when I and my wife were underground evading the FBI in 1971, putting out the Pentagon Papers, during that period, he wrote a letter to the New York Times saying, with respect to the Daniel Ellsberg case, I wasn't reading this at the time because we weren't seeing the New York Times moving from one apartment to another while I put out more copies of the Pentagon Papers, the different papers. So what I didn't see then or for many years later was he said, I, in the spring of 1945, spent sleepless nights deciding whether I should or should not release the information of what we were planning to do, namely release this bomb on Japan. And as he put it later, he said, I have no illusion but that the American public might well have endorsed this, might have gone along with it, but at least they would have shared the responsibility. They would have known what was about to happen. And of course, the main thing he wanted to put forward to them, not simply that this was going to kill a lot of people, we were already doing that with our firebombing in Japan. We yeah, were killing more, as many yeah. as we could. More. And uh, the bomb simply was a more efficient way of doing that. Not a larger scale. Actually, the killing in Tokyo on the night of March 9th and 10th, 45, killed about 100,000 people or much more than either Hiroshima or yeah. Nagasaki. People but, jumped into the canals what? and were yes, boiled were, to death. Yes, they were boiled to death as the canals were boiling. So 100,000 people were burned to death. Not a better way to die, actually, than, than died at Hiroshima, which was also still mainly from fire. All right. He said, at least before we do it, the real danger of that is not that we replace firebombing with atom bombs, but that we will go into an arms race, which in all of civilization will. So he said, I still believe, he said in 71, while I'm underground, I still believe that I would not have been wrong had I done so. Well, let's put it a different way. He would have been right. That was the right thing to do. Yeah. No one did it. Szilard apparently uh, didn't consider doing that. Well, he'd heard Rabinowitz, but he didn't consider doing that. But the FBI feared that he might, and so they put him under tremendous watch at that point, Szilard, mm. uh, to see if he might leak it. But no one did. And no one ever since, basically, did this. None of the scientists who thought that building the H-bomb, which was a thousand times more powerful than the A-bomb, the fission bomb. The H-bomb required a Nagasaki-type bomb as its trigger. And most of our weapons have always since then been H-bombs. They required Nagasaki bombs to detonate them. When Truman left office in 52, we had about a thousand A-bombs, fission bombs, targeted on Russian cities and East European cities. A thousand. When Eisenhower left office, we had 23,000 weapons, mostly thermonuclear, many of them a thousand times more powerful, 20 megatons, million tons, mm -hmm. than Nagasaki, which was 20,000 tons equivalent of TNT, and that was 
1,000 times the largest blockbuster of World War II, 20 tons. So it's from 20 tons to 20,000 tons to 20 million tons or a factor of a million since World War II. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire.